The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary series, Escaping Twin Flames. From Emmy nominee Cecilia Peck, this three-part documentary series pulls back the veil on Twin Flames universe, a controversial online community that preys on people looking for love. Den of Geek says it tackles one of the more interesting subjects that streaming has in some time. Escaping Twin Flames is available now on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Bowers and Ben Proudfoot about their Academy Award-nominated short documentary, The Last Repair Shop, which premiered at Telluride. The film sketches four stories of workers at a musical instrument repair shop that fixes instruments for students in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Although brief, the film is a pee-in to the redemptive benefits of music and a call for understanding in a deeply polarized country. The film has already won the Critics' Choice Award for Best Documentary Short. Ben has directed a number of well-regarded shorts, including the Academy Award-winning The Queen of Basketball. Chris has previously directed a short with Ben, the Oscar-nominated A Concerto is a Conversation. In addition to directing and producing, Chris has composed music for many films, like Green Book and the recently released The Color Purple and Bob Marley and many, many others. He has won numerous awards, including Emmys and Critics' Choice Awards. Chris's facility with both directing and composing really pays off in this film, notably at the very end, where the various threads of the film come together in a suite he composed for the film. As you'll hear, this seemingly inevitable conclusion was far from preordained and involved a lot of hard work and last-minute hustle. You can watch The Last Repair Shop on Disney+. If you enjoyed this discussion, please do follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TopDocsPod. That's all one word, TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Chris Bowers and Ben Proudfoot about their Oscar-nominated short, The Last Repair Shop. Chris, welcome to Top Docs. Hey, thanks for having me. Ben, welcome back to Top Docs. Nice to be back. I should mention that we had been on the show just about two years ago discussing the Queen of Basketball, which went on to win the Academy Award. Congratulations, Ben. Okay, so The Last Repair Shop tells the story about the last remaining instrument repair shop that serves the students of the Los Angeles Unified School District. Chris, what drew you to the story? So I'm from LA. I grew up here and I went to LAUSD schools. And when Ben first told me about this repair shop, we were working on another project together a few years ago. And he assumed that I might know about it or was asking if I had heard of it before. For me, I was surprised to not only know that it, it existed, but to never have thought about it, like to play the pianos I played in my schools, to rely on the music instruments and the music rooms in my schools and not know or think about who is keeping those things in good repair. This felt like a perfect opportunity to like connect with that repair shop and, and really say thank you to them. Ben, it sounds like you knew about it first. How'd you find out? Yeah, so I found out about it. Jeremy Lambert deserves the credit. He's our producer. His brother is a luthier, amazing guitar maker. My guess is that's why the article about the repair shop caught his eye. And when I saw it, I was just like, my... God, it's the North Pole of musical instruments. You know, it's like hundred thousand, more than a hundred thousand musical instruments, children's musical instruments. Go to this one sort of unassuming warehouse without windows under a freeway south of downtown. I was like, I, I want to know what that place looks like. I want to know what that place sounds like. 
just, I got to go get down there. And we were working on a concerto as a conversation together. I knew Chris had gone to LAUSD and I, I asked him if he knew about it. And we're both two very curious people who love talking about movies and music. So it was the great match from the beginning. And we spent the next four years making the movie all through the pandemic. Chris became a father. A lot, a lot of life passed under the bridge as we made this thing. So I'll show my cards here. The two big themes I'd love to talk about in our limited time are music and even how music influences the deep structure of the film. And then, you know, the realities of America, Los Angeles, and in particular, the LA workforce, which I think you really capture here. I'm going to start with structure. In effect, we have four movements. Each structure is similar in a similar fashion. We hear students with their instrument talking about what the instrument and music means to them. We then see a supervisor kind of looking through repair forms, the type of the instrument the student played, you know, brass, strings, whatever. And then you have a person, an adult, who repairs those types of instruments. How did you arrive at this structure? Good question. I'll let Chris take a staff, but I've never heard anyone referring to the acts of the movie as movements. And I, I love I love that because it is just makes sense. Yeah, that is very to me. Much. It's a melody, a bridge, and a chorus. That's what it is. I mean, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll go deep on this, but you guys tell me, how'd you come up with this particular structure? Well, I think we knew we wanted it to be a short, just we wanted to try to challenge ourselves to get all of this amazing information into as short uh, and digestible of a form as possible. So that is what led to it not being four individual shorts or, you know, even longer. We also tried some other structures that weren't working as well or talked about other structures that wouldn't work as well. So I think a combination of wanting to make it that long and then also trying every possible structure and just finding this one worked the best. But we knew we had the four craftspeople and so we knew we would be on each of their, their stories. But in terms of like the order and also um, deciding to have each of them have their own little moment, a lot of that was trial and error. To me, the last one is almost a little bit of a surprise because Steve, the administrator, had been reading the sheets. Yes. We find out that he actually he was a piano tuner and he started at the shop there. To me, it was almost like a chord resolving. It felt very <laughs> musical to me, folks. God, I was dreaming are, it. But... You, are you, you do independent publicity work because I think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love seeing it through the musical lens. Obviously, that was kind of like the governing metaphor for the movie. I will also say Nick Ryan, our editor, deserves huge, huge credit in terms of figuring out that structure and doing a lot, so much of that trial and error work and shuffling yeah. things around back and forth. The interviews with the kids, that was Chris's idea because he understood from a young person's perspective, the relationship that a kid can have with the instrument. And interestingly enough, you mentioned Steve. So Steve, who, like you said, is this sort of almost like host, or he kind of reminds me of like the judge in the, in the Capra movie, who's like impartial, right? But then at the end, mm -hmm. shows his hands. Believe it or not, there are 6,000, 6,000 pianos. Wow. Imagine what it would look like in a big pile. In LAUSD, of all those pianos, who, when we trace back to the history books, who was the one who tuned Chris Bowers, little Chris Bowers, <laughs> elementary middle school piano? That. It was Steve. It was Steve. Wow. 20 years later, we're making this movie, and it's like, oh, I wonder who tuned my piano. And it was Steve. <laughs> Amazing. So as you're talking about brass and strings, behind each of these, it really does seem like you're picking the music to emphasize this particular instrument. For example, when it's brass, horns come to the front. Is it, did you think about it that way? And what did, what did it take to get all that done? Katya Richardson, our, our composer, really you know did an incredible job with that. We did talk about this kind of being a Peter and the Wolf type of 
exploration and focusing on each instrument family when we meet each technician. And then I just gave Katya some piano sketches of the themes for each of those. And in addition to um, choosing to highlight the instrument that we're talking about, she also did an incredible job of utilizing each of those themes as much as possible throughout each of those sections as well. So like each person's vignette also has a very specific thematic treatment and a score as well. But yeah, Katya Richardson, she's incredible. I think visually in the film, there's this implicit wall between the student and the repair technician. In fact, kind of Steve sitting there between them. But that breaks down quite a bit because we hear that the craftspeople, I'm sure they pursue it partly for the pleasure of the craft. I mean, if you care about instruments like fixing, like this must be powerful, but they also very much find meaning in service of the hopes and dreams of the students. There's a great sort of visual representation of this when Patty, you know, she works with brass instruments and she finds all these uh, dolls and balls and toys stuck in the brass instruments. And she says, it's like a secret communication between the kid and herself. Yeah, I found that incredibly poignant and charming from the first, right? Because they, they never get to meet their customers, right? All, all they see is they see a broken tuba coming in and they see a pencil or a marble or a little troll doll fall out of it. And they fix it up and send it off. And that's your daily experience for 20 years. You're sort of filling in the blank of the negative space of who are these kids? Who are they? They're, they're just an idea of a kid. And so I think that's part of what our film is also doing and, and why it made so much sense to bring the students and the repair people together at the end in that big performance is, I think in the back of your mind somewhere, you're saying, man, I wish, I wish they could hear each other. I wish the repair people could hear these kids and know how much these instruments mean to them and see the beauty of the music of, of the, the fruits of their labor. And then that end credit just becomes this huge fruit basket after being teased for 35 minutes, wanting to see this sort of connection be made. And I think that's why it's so emotionally cathartic and memorable to see them play. One of the things when you're showing the kids talking about their instruments and talking about their love of music and talking about how it affects their lives and serves as a bomb in many cases for pretty difficult experiences. And no, it sounds small, but to me, it was really powerful. And it seemed to pick up as the film went along, which is what the sound and the image would go in asynchronous for a little bit. And so we'd see the child speak about this something and then stop and pause. And we'd hear the next sentence begin before their lips started moving again. And this, as I said, seemed to get a little more intense as the film went along. To me, it punctuated their emotional resonance with music and also it was kind of rhythmic and musical in itself. Those Jay cuts and also hanging on someone's reaction or kid's reaction. There's so much meaning and subtext in the face somebody makes after saying something and not continuing the thought, a real full stop on an idea. I just find there's so much meaning in the aftermath of a comment. And just from a technical filmmaking perspective, having what in music would be called like a pickup into the next thing, but in dialogue editing, a sort of a J-cut, a, a pre-lap of the next comic keeps the rhythm and prepares the audience for the cut out of that kind of hanging moment. And it just actually works better than cutting on silence or cutting on the beginning of a comment is just pre-lap the dialogue a little bit, helps the audience kind of ramp out of those kind of big emotional moments. But I, I think of it kind of like musically too, like when you have a big amp up musical crescendo that hangs into a pause, often a composer will have like a drum pickup or something that comes into the beat. And the same thing is happening there with the dialogue. 
Let's talk about the four fixers. We won't talk about all of them. We can't in this period of time. And also, I want to leave something for folks to watch. But at you least... don't have to watch, dude. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you really should. Uh, at least partly representative of the diversity of the Los Angeles workforce. Beyond just being about America, immigrants from both Mexico and from the former Soviet Union, a people of variety of LGBTQ statuses. And yes, a former entertainer, still entertaining actually, but, you know, had his big day in the past. You know, I taught at UCLA and this is pretty representative of where these kids come from. So let's talk about Patty first, who rises from Mexico. Her path is not easy. One thing you show is how there's a little bit of serendipity to root. I want to talk more about that, but really she has to prove herself over and over again. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, just speaks to her perseverance to not only get here and then be a single mom, but she ended up working at another instrument rental shop. What's so interesting is that she basically was given a chance for a week and her hard work and work ethic made it so that she stayed there for, I think it was seven years or something like that. And then she tried out for the instrument repair shop and was the only woman. She's still the only woman there and the only woman to audition. And I'm sure she speaks about it very humbly, but given her uh, work ethic and all that, I'm sure she probably blew the competition away. I appreciated her story so much and her being so open and vulnerable about doing all of this while being a single mom and trying to figure it out and going from not being able to afford comforts for her family to now having this position. I think that story is definitely one that is so powerful that it speaks to her perseverance. Yeah, there's some real similarities, I think, between all their stories, certainly between Patty and, and Steve, who's also an immigrant, in that there's this kind of provisionality of experience. Like nobody says, I'm going to work in a repair shop, instrument repair shop when they're a kid, probably. But it's like a series of accident and this underlying love of music. Steve almost talks about it like it comes for him. He can't get away from it. That love for music is going to find him someplace somewhere. Mm. Yeah. The the inexorable magnetism of music is present in all of the stories. We're, we're hopeful. You know, the film's on Disney+. Plus, So we're hoping that somewhere there is some kid who now aspires to become an instrument. Sure. Person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be me. I mean, I was like, I was, I was Tim the Toolman Taylor for Halloween when I was seven years old, <laughs> which may not be a surprise to you, Chris. Uh, <laughs> from Home Improvement. So I think um, there's a real sort of element of fate in this movie of like, you have all these threads from all over the world and they somehow have all crossed in this warehouse under the 10 freeway uh, in downtown LA and are harmonizing in this beautiful cord of life and loss and repair. It was stunning really to find out how different and yet how similar all of their stories were. And believe it or not, those are just the four people who volunteered. We did really? not any additional people. We did not pre-interview anybody. Those are just the four people who raised their hand among no a very reluctant group of repair people, I might add. That's those amazing. Four. Stories. The stories are amazing. So let's talk about one of the most amazing ones, which is Dwayne. At a fairly young age, he journeys from feeling like an outcast, almost like Frankenstein's monster, to actually finding himself in a bluegrass band and managed by Colonel Tom Parker and ultimately opening for Elvis, you know, in front of 70,000 people. So you didn't know about that story going in? Absolutely did not. I, I honestly was more curious. It's not even in the movie, but he had a little steam and like a literal steam engine and train and setup on his desk. I thought that's what it would be about tinkering and whatever. And then he pulls up this Elvis yarn. I was like, what? You know, like, this is crazy. It, it, it's so LA, right? It is so LA. And I want to talk about that because 
this is an LA story to me. It should be pointed out. I did a little bit of the math here. I think he might be in his mid seventies, and he's you know working in the repair shop. You know, with the actor strike and the, the writer strike last year, I thought about the people I knew when I was in LA. We're in the entertainment industry. You know, the the cliche is the young actor working as a waiter, which is certainly true. I have certainly knew some folks like that. But also, you meet many people who have have had active careers in the entertainment industry who work other jobs their whole life and often well into retirement age because they didn't get any benefits to be saving up for. And they're, so this is a very common, there are a lot of folks like this in LA, I found. Oh yeah. Yeah. Me and Chris are going to be 75 years old, making sure documentaries on the side. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it is. And du Dwayne represents that. Like you, you meet somebody and, and they have these amazing brushes with celebrity and with show business. I, I love that. I love that about living in Los Angeles. I think Dwayne represents exactly that, right? Exactly that is someone who came out here to become, in his case, he was born here, but a lot of people come out here to become a part of the entertainment industry. I did. I'm from Nova Scotia. I came out here about as far away from Nova Scotia as I possibly could be. I think he sings a song that a lot of people can relate to in the city, which is maybe I'm not the most famous person in the world, but doesn't mean I didn't, I didn't do some pretty cool things in my day. Throughout the film, your participants really make all sorts of metaphorical connections between their work, repairing things, and all sorts of brokenness, personal, cultural, maybe implicitly political. And I think at a higher level, your film is a, can be seen as a plea for cultural reconciliation. One way I think you really demonstrate this, you really bring this home, is towards the end of the film, before we get to the literal symphony, and I want to get there in a minute, you bring together a bunch of the different, maybe all the different voices that have been speaking and you edit them so they're sort of speaking with one voice and they're speaking about brokenness and repair. It, it is almost like a symphony of voices. It felt to me, again, continue the musical kind of structure. But by reading this right, do you really feel like in some ways, are you making sort of a, a claim for the possibility of cultural reconciliation in a time of division? I definitely think that that's what, at least Ben and I, one of the things that we responded to so much is how much we live in this time of throwing things away or feeling like things need to be torn all the way down. And there's arguments for those, but I think that it's also helpful with this to be reminded of power of repair and the power of taking a hard look at something that seems like it's beyond repair and seeing what can be done about it. And it feels like whether that's these individuals and what happened in their lives, but also relationships or broken promises. I think that there are definitely things that can be looked at with this framework or this idea of being willing to consider repairing it. And there could be something even more beautiful that comes out of that. Yeah, I think I think on a larger level as well, well it's definitely something that we can be reminded of in a time where we're as polarized as we are, for sure. The finish of this film, I <laughs> encourage everyone to watch this film. And if you can hold it together during the end of this film, I, I congratulate you. I did not. What an amazing moving end. Uh, you have a symphony orchestra based upon the alums from, from LAACD. Can you talk about how you brought these folks together and, and what you're trying to achieve there? It was an adventure. We submitted the film to Telluride Film Festival, and it just had a normal end credit roll over black, white text on black. And we got the call from Julie at Telluride. We'd love to have your film. We were over the moon. Couldn't believe it was so exciting. What a great celebration at the end of four years of hard work. 
as often happens, Chris and I says, maybe we gotta do that big finale we've been talking about. You know, we've been talking about for a while because it's, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we had a big show at the end? There was a bunch of different sort of iterations of the idea. You know, do we do a big performance at Walt Disney Concert Hall or we go down to the LA River and have some big thing in there. And we, we talked about a number of different ideas, but this specific thought of, wouldn't it be great to bring together multiple generations of LAUSD grads from seven years old to 70 years old, bring them all together in sort of the epicenter of the recording world at the Eastwood scoring stage in the Warner Brothers lot. And we got to get it done in like the next two, three weeks. And we have no money. <laughs> and the piece of music also had not been written yet. We depended on a lot of people. I mean, our executive producers who helped us pay for it. Tons of people who donated their time. Peter Rotter, who not only was an executive producer of the film, but also a music contractor who helped practice, calling people up, where'd you go to elementary school, you know, to try <laughs> to fill this thing. And then, you know, I hand it over to Chris because because then there's this tall order of like, okay, give this huge 35 minute sweep. And then basically this piece of music is going to have to walk up to bat and hit a home run, bases loaded, or else it's going to be a sort of fall flat kind of last taste in your mouth. So here's Chris with, I don't know what he had, a few, a few days to take the themes that he had written and, and worked with Katya on to create this end suite. And I think that's really, if you really stop and think about that, you wrote that piece of music in a, really? in a few days. It was incredible to watch it come together. Just like, imagine like the Empire State Building getting built in three days. It was a huge achievement. To me. Um, yeah. It seems so inevitable now. Now it seems like you you had that first and you were looking back. Yeah, looking <laughs> back at this now, it was not inevitable. A lot of people made that happen for us, honestly. Chris, you wrote that in three days. And also Dwayne wrote some other music. Uh, you have a couple different. Yeah, so basically there's a, a little melody uh, riff that Dwayne wrote that he played for Ben back when Dwayne did his interview. And we always talked about trying to find a way for that to be in the film in some sort of way. And so it felt like a perfect moment to... We took his theme from the film and then rearranged it to put his melody on it, uh, which is a lot of fun to give him that chance to show how amazing of a fiddle player he actually is. Yeah, it was really fun. He is. Beautiful. It really works. And just for me, as somebody, you know, lived in L.A., I see like a kid says, uh, Palm's Middle School band or whatever. And I'm like, Palm's Middle School? I used to poop it up there on the playground. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I, was, and I also thought, about, wow, some of these people might have been my students at UCLA. Like, just that experience to see these kids from all over L.A. playing together again. It, yeah. there's, there's an implicit, to me, there's really an implicit call for reconciliation. There's an implicit call for, let's make some music together, folks. Yeah, and let's not be factions in the same city. We are so, you know, e even quite literally, literally the way we move around Los Angeles is in our little cars, in our little pods, right? We have these little windows into other people's lives, but we're so rarely together in the same place, which I think divides us and separates us into all these little sort of microcosms, but we are all Angelinos. And I'm excited, we might have to wait 20 years for the public transit system to get going, because I think it will change the very way we see and interact with each other. And so and that is our greatest hope with this film, is to inspire people to connect with each other in Los Angeles or whatever city you live in around the world to, to have empathy for, for each other, to understand that we all are living our own stories 
And the, the beauty and joy of being able to listen to each other and play in harmony and live in harmony, as cheesy as that may sound, it's, it's a really important thing that we put that as our number one priority. And I think the people in this movie are so inspired, authentically inspiring in that direction. I think the way you put it is actually is exactly what I think came out of those interviews is a, is a call for reconciliation and repair and coming together. I think you're totally right about that. And, and also just when we think about music education, I think one of the things that we also were excited for this film to catalyze conversation around is how much it's not about just creating amazing musicians and that it's really about helping people through every aspect of life, especially now thinking about what young kids are going through with this mental health crisis that we're in. I feel like it was so refreshing to hear these young people be so clear about the fact that playing the saxophone gave Ismail a discipline or Amanda can find confidence in the face of the anxiety she feels or, or stress she feels about what she might do in her future. That piano brings her this peace and confidence. And obviously all of the craftspeople talking about what music did for, for them and their lives. And since we've made the film, it's been so amazing to hear so many stories of people that talked about how important their music education was to them becoming the person they are, the politician they are when it came to people learning how to listen to the, the people next to them and, and harmonize and all the other things that we've talked about. I think that that's something that we really feel passionately about with this film. And what it says is that music education is is so vital, not only to help those that want to pursue music, but also to help those that just need an outlet for the things that they're moving through in life. Well, guys, you know, Ben, we spoke before about how you believe shorts are a special form on all their own. And in this film, Last Repair Shop, you and Chris proved that once again. This beautifully crafted, just wonderfully shot, masterfully edited, and deeply, deeply moving. So thank you for this film. Really appreciate it. And thanks for being here, guys. We love we love coming on the on the pod and we appreciate all your kind words. And thanks for highlighting Last Repair Shop. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. You really appreciate it. Have a good weekend, man. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. You have a hidden gem, a documentary that you don't think gets the attention it deserves. Something recently that I really thought was fantastic was the sentence of Michael Thompson. It got some recognition, but I thought it was one of the best films of the year last year. It's an incredible short documentary by Kyle Thrash and Haley Anderson. I feel like this probably got a lot of time heard that many people talk about it lately, but The Act of Killing is probably one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Top Docs is a production of Wooly Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill and edited by Mike. Mike.